Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A saga of spiritual freedom and religious intolerance. A warning and a lesson from the past always worth telling. Except, of course, that none of it is true. So that was Mark Gregory Pegg in A Most Holy War, The Albigensian Crusade and the Battle for Christendom, the story of the Cathars. And Tom, you ended our last episode, renowned historian Tom Holland, (laughs) with that quotation. Um, We discussed the book The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. We talked about the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. We talked about this extraordinary series of fantasists and con artists and hoaxers whose fake manuscripts and stories of buried treasure and buried bloodlines ultimately all flowed into the success of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. And behind it all is the story of this shadowy, secretive, sort of shadow church, I suppose, called the Cathars in the Middle Ages. And you ended with that quotation effectively saying that it's not just that the conspiracy theories from the novels are not true, but that a lot of the history may not even be true. Well, specifically histories that were written in the 70s through to the beginning of the 21st century. Right. And that, that in a sense, they are kind of highbrow <laughs> versions of the Da Vinci Code, that both of them are are recycling conspiracy theories yeah. that are, are not actually true. So so just to sort of, as a, as a the incredibly accessible sort of summary, for those people who are completely ignorant of all this, the standard view that you would find in a sort of encyclopedia or something, if I looked up the Cathars, yeah, well, or, or Wikipedia. I mean, it's, Wikipedia. Still, it's still very much there on, on Wikipedia. What would, it, what would it tell us? Who are they and where and where? Uh, so it would say that the Cathars are a kind of shadowy counter-church in the Middle Ages, that they are based in uh, Languedoc, the Midi, south of France, that they are dualist. In other words, they believe that there is a kind of malign god and a good god, that matter is evil and that spirit is good, that these are ideas that derive from ancient heresies, that they are part of a living tradition that went underground in the Byzantine Empire, that in the 11th and 12th centuries passed from Byzantium to Bulgaria and a set called the Bogomils, who then had missionaries who came to the West and they seeded this church, and that these people were called Cathars. Yeah. This is this is who they were, and that they were part of a kind of wider, organised, European-wide kind of church of, of heretics. And that this then precipitates, that the existence of this Cathar church precipitates, in the beginning of the 13th century, the first crusade to be targeted against people within the fabric of Christendom rather than beyond it. Yeah. And that over the course of the 13th and 14th century, all traces of the Cathar Church are wiped out both by military campaigning and then after that by the action of inquisitors and that by the middle of the 14th century, the Cathar Church has vanished. And by, and, and by the way, that's not, not just the, vi- the version that you see on Wikipedia or in encyclopedias. 
I mean, we were talking in the last episode about both of us have been, I mean, independently of each other, I might add, to the long dock to see the castles and the sites. Yeah. And the tourist board massively pushes this. I mean, this is Cathar country, Cathar castles. It's pay, pay Qatar, yeah. Cathar country. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, so it seems kind of astonishing that, that his, a historian could say that none of it is true. And before I go on to say about wh- why this might be the case, two things to make clear. The first is that by the standards of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, there absolutely were heretics in the long dock. There were people who, by the standards of the Catholic inquisitors, ranked as heretics. And the second is that the crusade, I mean, clearly it, it is unspeakably brutal. So uh, Mark Gregory Pegg, who I was quoting, I mean, he describes it actually as the genesis of an entire tradition of genocide within Western history. So he, it's not, it's not that he is downplaying it in any way. But basically the, there are two things he argues and other historians are increasingly arguing that the standard accounts get wrong. The first is that the word Cathar is a misnomer. There were no people who identified themselves as Cathars or who were identified by the Catholic Church as Cathars in Longdoc. So people didn't even use the word. So, so we'll come to where does the word Cathar, how does it come to be used in a minute? Okay. But the other thing is that there was no dualist heresy. It did not have roots reaching back into antiquity. It did not come from Byzantium. It did not come from Bulgaria. And it was not part of a wider organized heretic church. But none okay. of those things are true. When you say a dualist heresy, so that's the idea that there are two gods, is it? Or God and the devil? Is there it? Two or God gods and the devil. And it's matter and spirit. Yes, exactly. That, right. So kind of ultimately it's a Persian idea. Manichaean, Manichaeanism. Yes, yeah, so Mani, who was um, a prophet who preached this idea that the world was divided by rival gods, each representing matter and spirit, evil and good. And this is what the uh, the Cathars believe. That None of that is true. None of that is true. So where does the word Cathar come from? And I, w- I will quote an, an, another extremely distinguished historian on this. And this is the historian R.I. Moore, Bob Moore who he, he wrote a, a fantastic book called Europe's First Revolution about the 11th century and its aftermath. I would say he's not just one of, of Britain's greatest medieval historians, he's one of Britain's greatest historians, full stop. And he wrote a, a fantastic book called The War on Heresy, came out, in, I think, in 2014. And it is uh, described on the cover as startling, unsettling and revelatory by a, a top podcaster. That's... Um, namely myself. I was going to say, it's Al Murray. <laughs> So it, it, it's it's a really eye-opening book. And I still remember the kind of, um, you know, when you read a, a, a work of history and it gives you a kind of intellectual thrill. Yeah, absolutely. A bit like the Da Vinci Code, but in a very, very, you know, <laughs> different plateau. But it's a kind of, you read it and you think, I can't quite believe this, but actually it all makes sense. It's really, really exciting. It's one of those book. books. I read a book called When Montezuma Met Cortez by a guy called Matthew Restall. And, and it, I think it's the same thing. It's a, it, one of those books that basically says... The narrative that you have been reading yeah, all your life true. is wrong. And here is why. And, it, and it's it's a wonderful feeling as a historian to read a book like that. It is. So it's a bit like when I was 12 and I read The Holy Blood and The Holy Grail, and I didn't know any better. I was kind of complete, completely convinced by it. But I was kind of convinced by by Moore's book, The War on Heresy, because, you know, he, he is one of the great historians of the Middle Ages. And so you know that you're in safe hands with him. And I will, I will now read what he says about the use of the word Cathar and the fact that there was such a thing as Cathars in the, uh, 
in, in, yeah. in Languedoc in the period. Among the many obstacles, Moore writes, placed in the way of this account by fun-hating historians, so namely himself and, and Peg. The simplest, though one of the most recently articulated, is that nobody in the 13th century pay Cathar, so the Cathar country, accused or accuser, actually used the word Cathar. It does not occur in the large body of letters and sermons denouncing heresy in the region from the middle of the 12th century in the records of the region's inquisitions or indeed in any medieval source directly from it. So basically, it just wasn't used there. Right. Yes. How come historians are using it? Yeah. And the answer to that is that it, it's it's used in the middle of the 19th century by a French Protestant his, historian called Charles Schmitt, who publishes a book in 1849 that uses the word Qatar in the title. He, he was a very great scholar. I mean, hugely influential on the study of this whole kind of field and, and, and area. But it, it's still not being widely used by historians until really the post-war period. So it, it starts to be used in France very much around the time that um, Plantard is starting, you know, who we talked about in the previous episode, is starting to make up his stuff about the Priory of Zion. Yeah. This is a kind of posh, you know, a, a academic equivalent that French scholars are starting to use the word Qatar. And then it starts to be used by historians who are writing in English from the 70s onwards. At about the time where people are becoming really interested in the conspiracy theories, but also in academia, people are being really interested in sort of marginal yes. stories. So in yes. other words, and that's got a tiny, I mean, I know this is a strange link, but that's got a tiny hint of the conspiracy theory about it in the sense that historians are sort of saying, now the standard narrative of great, the great and the good that you've been told all your lives is wrong. And we are uncovering hidden histories. I mean, uncovering hidden histories is what conspiracy theorists claim to do. So there is a kind of symbiosis there. Yes, but, but there is, there are conspiracy theories and the conspiracy theories are not just originating with, you know, lunatics or indeed academics in the late 20th century. Same, same thing, surely. <laughs> <laughs> it's originating from, from the Middle Ages themselves. Okay. So the word Cathar, is being used in the Middle Ages and indeed long before the Middle Ages. So it, it, what it, it's a Greek word. So Catharoi means the pure ones, or you might say the pure, you know, Puritans. So they're mentioned in a canon. So, so one of the, the kind of the statements, um, that's issued by the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Nicaea is convened by Constantine the Great. So the first Christian emperor. And this is, they come up with the creed, the Orthodox creed. Right. And the, 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 the Cathars are described as one of the group of, of heretics who, who are condemned. And then no one mention, makes any more mention of them. So they vanish from the record for almost a thousand years. And then in 1163, in Cologne, in Cologne, six men and two women are burned as heretics and they are described as Cathars. So that is a very, very long gap. That's a huge, that's it's a huge gap. gap. And so from that point on in the writings of bishops and and so on you start to get mention of heretics who are called cathars and they're identified here and there across christendom never in great numbers and then in 1173 a great council the third a council to be held in the lateran palace in rome where the pope is based and you get people uh, prelates um monks scholars coming from across europe to meet in rome and they're all bringing their reports and they're discussing heresy yeah. and they identify the existence of a single body of heretics who are, in the words of, the, of uh, one of the decrees of the Lateran Council, this third Lateran Council, whom some call Cathars, others Paterines, and others by different names. 
So there are two obvious questions from all this. And the first is, are the Cathars who suddenly appear in Cologne yeah. in the mid-12th century the same as the heretics condemned in the early 4th century? Because that's basically the argument that is being, you know, that is being made when you say that there is this living tradition that yeah. derives from antiquity that, that went underground in Byzantium, came through Bulgaria, and was brought by missionaries. Which is a kind of more respectable version of the Priory of Zion or the... Exactly so. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's what's so interesting about it. It is. And it's implausible in the, with the Priory of Zion. And I think it's implausible in this case. I was about to say, the answer to that question is surely no. They cannot be the same. And the other thing that you have, of course, with the Priory of Zion is this idea of a conspiracy that is not centred in one place, but spans the whole of, of Europe. Isaac Newton, Don Revy, yeah. Les Dawson, you know, they're well, all in it. You have people from it, you know, you have... Da Vinci, uh, Victor Hugo, uh, <laughs> Isaac Newton. Yes. Yeah. So people from across Europe. And in the same way, what the, um, what the prelates at the Third Lateran Council are doing are saying there is a, a universal church that all of these heretics are, are joined. I mean, again, it seems improbable. It seems much likelier that this is something that is being projected. Yes. By, you know, so when all these people meet up in the Lateran Council, they're all comparing notes and they'll go, yeah, they're all you know, part of the same organization. But it's actually very clear that there is confusion among the accusers as to who or what Cathars are. So, so there is a, a German monk who, who claims that their name derives from the cat that devotees of Satan were reputed to, to kiss on its anus. Oh, my word. Yeah. So, so you, you become a worshipper of Satan and you, you kiss the bottom of a cat, a great black cat. Are people doing that in large numbers? I don't believe it. <laughs> I think it's improbable. And, and so the implication of that is that actually the, the Cathars are, are so obscure that only the very, very learned know who they are. And the antiquity of them is the point. So by kind right. of name checking Cathars, you are showing off how, how intellectual you are, how learned you are, how scholarly you are. Yeah. And this, this period, the 12th century, is when universities are starting to appear. So this is where you get people whose job it is basically to sit in universities and study this stuff. And yeah. suddenly they're saying, you know, they're reading up about the Cathars in ancient tomes and suddenly they're discovering them, you know, on the Rhine or in northern Italy or whatever. And what is better, what is even better, Tom, is that they are saying, well, it's very complicated to explain. If you know, you know. And if you don't know, well, you're obviously not intelligent enough to understand. Yeah. So, so basically what is it? It's the kind of, you know, it's the, the literate elite, the scholarly elite, the university educated people who are basically constructing the idea of a universal heretical church that spans Christendom and reaches back to a kind of, you know, the distant mists of the church's beginnings. And yeah. it seems likelier that they are making it up than that this, this church actually exists. Right. So in other words, it's, it's, you know, like all conspiracy theories, it's telling you less about what is actually happening than about the people who are coming, who, who are bringing it up. Okay. So tell us about the people who are bringing it up then. So these are, these are people who want to see themselves as the representatives of a completely unchanging church. So the Catholic church is something that has existed since the time of Christ. It's unchanging. It, it embodies eternal doctrines, eternal teachings, eternal truths. And conversely, its enemy, the shadow of heresy, likewise, is something unchanging right. and something universal. However, the fact that is that for most of the early Middle Ages, the church is not going after heretics. 
there are no heretics. And they start to appear in the 11th century. Suddenly, in the 11th century, charges of heresy are starting to be brought. And people in the church are starting to become worried about heresy. And what is the process that, you know, what is happening that is making this change happen? And the irony is, as I said at the end of the last episode, that there are Cathars and they're, they're, they're in full view. The Cathars are the people who have taken charge of the commanding heights of the Catholic Church, because a Cathar is someone who is, you know, I said it's a Puritan, someone who wants to pure, to, to be pure. Yeah. And this in the 11th century becomes the great goal, the great object of reformers in the Catholic Church, that they want to cleanse and purify the whole fabric of Christendom, of the taint of sin, that it's not just, you know, individual believers, you have to be baptized and washed clean, the whole fabric of Christendom does. And this desire to cleanse and purify Christendom, uh, it's a kind of progressive ambition to to make the Christian people better, nobler, to fulfill God's purpose more yeah. completely. In the 11th century, this precipitates what R.I. Moore, Bob Moore, who I mentioned, mm-hmm. written this great book, The War on Heresy, describes as Europe's first revolution. And it's a revolution that it's called either the Papal Revolution or the Gregorian Revolution after the, the Pope Gregory VII, who is most kind of closely associated with this process. And it's an incredibly convulsive experience, for, uh, not just for the church, but for the whole of Europe, because it requires people who, who, who are reluctant to accept this kind of campaigning idea that the whole of Christendom should be transformed and cleansed. It, it requires them yeah. to be kind of whipped into shape. So that, that famously includes kings and emperors. So Gregory VII, you know, he, he, he has the emperor himself, Henry IV, kneel in the snows beneath his castle at Canossa and beg for forgiveness. And this kind of great convulsive process whereby the Roman church is trying to break the power of kings to essentially appropriate everything that is the dimension of the supernatural into their own hands. And this is the kind of the, the process that results in uh, universities. Because right. you need kind of literate clerical people who can articulate and carry through the ambitions of this revolutionary program. And that's how universities, you know, Bologna or Oxford or whatever. So Bologna, Bologna, the first one, it begins as a kind of great center of law, of, of legal students because they're trying to construct frameworks of law that can govern this new kind of Christian understanding of what uh, the Christian world should be. Yeah. And also it generates what will come to be called crusades because the church needs defenders and it needs to propagate it's, you know, it's a missionary faith, like all yeah. kind of all the revolutions that will follow it. It believes in the totality of its vision and it needs to be propagated if needs be at the point of a sword. Yeah. And so it's a very, very convulsive experience, a transformative experience. It's the primal experience of revolution in European history. And, you know, it's not uh, Lenin or Robespierre or Luther who stands at the primal head of the revolutionary tradition in Europe. It's Gregory VII and the reformers around him. These are the primal revolutionaries. So the Catholic Church in the 11th, 12th, 13th century, in the period that we're talking about when the Cathars are supposed to have existed, yeah. you know, this is a revolutionary institution. But from above. So Absolutely, a yes. bit like it's a, it's a stupid comparison, but Mao's cultural revolution or something, a revolution kind of above and kind of not. And this is where we get back to heresy and, and the Cathars. So you remember in the, um, the third Lateran Council, 1173, you get this description of heretics whom some call Cathars, others Paterines and others by different names. So who are the Paterines? Yeah. 
so, so the, 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 the patterns take us exactly to all the ambivalences and complexities of this process. So the patterns are radicals, radical Christians in Milan in the mid 11th century who are basically street reformers. They are people who are opposed to the, the Bishop of Milan and the clerical elites. They are, are people who are rising up from the streets who are kind of embracing the idea of their own poverty, their ascetic, and they're vigorously insistent that the bishop and the, his clergy should be celibate, that celibacy should be the marker of the, of their, their purity, of the fact that they are right. becoming, you know, catharoi, cathars. And this is exactly what Gregory the seventh, as he will become Hildebrand, as he was, he, he was called at this point. This is what he wants as well. And so basically he forms an alliance with these patterines. Patterine comes from the, um, the name of the rag market in, in Milan. These are people who are absolutely from the streets, but it's an alliance of the top and the bottom for the, the would be reformers in Rome with these kind of street reformers in yeah. Milan. And they are, you know, these violent demands that priests set themselves apart from the laity, that they, they do that through rejecting sex, through casting aside their concubines, all these kinds of things. And Gregory goes into alliance with them. The, the, the reformers go into alliance with them because it's their ambition to, to kind of undermine the legitimacy of bishops and clergy who are opposing them. So they're using right. these people to kind of break. They're using the street guys against the middle management, basically. Exactly. So actually that comparison that I made, which seemed ludicrous, Mao's Cultural Revolution, there is an, it's Mao and the students against the people in the middle. Yeah. Yes. And for, and for reasons that perhaps, you know, at the end of this series, we might touch on as, as, right. as to where exactly all this ends up. But the, so this is going on in the 11th century. It's, it's this kind of process whereby the papal reformers are in alliance with very radical Christians, Christians who, who see priests as corrupt, who are, embracing poverty, embracing chastity, performing kind of miracles, you know, out in the fields, out in the streets, and who are being hailed as people, you know, for their holiness outside the structures of the church. But by the 12th century, the revolution is starting to succeed. And so the the, the, the reformers have begun to capture the institutions that previously they'd been busy undermining. Right. And so now, now that they have captured the bishoprics, now that they've enforced chastity on the on the clergy, now that they're kind of managing to get kings and emperors to accept this kind of new dispensation. Now the authority of the clergy and the bishops and the priests is really important. And so the patrines now have become a problem. And so they, 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 you know, in the 11th century, they'd been useful, but now they've become a problem. And so, you know, by the end of the 12th century, they're being identified as heretics. So the 12th century and the way in which heresy what is called heresy emerges in the 12th century is actually a reflection of something that we see in every revolution that has happened since, which is that once revolutionary elites have seized control of the commanding heights and, and basically become the new elite, yes, the new establishment, then they, they always face two blocks of opponents. And one of those is those who think the revolution hasn't gone far enough. So the extremists, the militants. The extremists, of whom the patrons would be an example. The right. fact that, you know, there's still corruption. The, the priests still need to be kept on their toes. Yeah. So they, they, they are a problem. And of course, the other people are, are the block of people are those who've been left behind. What Hillary Clinton might call the deplorables. <laughs> yes. Right. The gammons. The gammons. So. Exactly. The gammons. And so this is why you have an upsurge of heresy in the, in the 11th and the 12th century is that it's the church that is the radical and the revolutionary institution. 
but it is redefining its opponents, both those who who feel that the revolution hasn't gone far enough and those who've been left behind as as heretics. Right. Yes. And so since you're having these universities that initially are, are being set up to study law, but increasingly you know, they move to Paris and Oxford and so on, they are they're kind of preparing clerics for this much more kind of institutionalized world where the power of the church is much, much more coherent and kings need clerics and all this kind of stuff. So you're having more and more people who are familiar with the writings of the, of the church fathers and the canons of the church and so on. And so they are looking back to the early history of the church for archetypes of heresy. And what they're finding there are dualists and Gnostics and Cathars and all these kind of various people. And so the more they're looking for them, the more they spook themselves and the more anxious they become about the existence of these supposedly ancient heretics who derive their teachings from, you know, in a lineal descent from ancient heretics and, and are a kind of universal church. They become more and more kind of paranoid about it. And so initially in, in the 11th and 12th centuries, the church approached heretics in a kind of very gingerly way, because a bit like witchcraft hunters in the, in the 17th century, you know, they, they're aware that the evidence for it is often quite difficult to pin yeah. down and they're not kind of entirely certain about it. But by the time you have this third Lateran council where it's, you know, identifying Cathars and Paterines as, as, as a kind of universal church, they're becoming much more proactive. So in 1184, you get a papal decree that requires bishops not just to wait for accusations against heretics, but actually to go out and look for them, to kind of sniff them out, to hunt them down. Right. And the figure who is most momentously associated with this development is perhaps the greatest of all the medieval popes, certainly the most powerful, the pope who places England under interdiction, you know, excommunicates John, pope called Innocent III. And he is Pope from 1198 through to 1216. So in other words, the period when the crusade against the supposed heretics in the Languedoc will be launched. And Innocent III, so he describes himself as below God, but above man, less than God, but greater than man, who judges all things, but who no one judges. And he is obsessed by two things. He's obsessed by Cathars. He's always going on about them. He's worried that Cathars are everywhere, kind of breeding. So in two respects, Tom, he's like you. In what way? A high opinion of himself. No, that's not me. Thinks he's above other people, but uh, no one judges. And obsessed by Cathars. You've been trying to, you've been wanting to do this podcast for years. <laughs> yeah, I have. Okay. So in, 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 in the obsession with Cathars, I accept that. So, so he's, he's obsessed by Cathars, particularly in Northern Italy, but he, you know, he's seeing them everywhere. But the other thing he's obsessed by, particular threat of heresy in the Languedoc in the south of France and perhaps we should take a break at this point and when when we come back we can explore why Innocent III thinks that 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 region but before we do that I'm just going to come out and say it I know everybody thinks that I'm going to be thinking it I am thinking it there are so many resonances aren't there between uh, all this and uh, speaking as a speaking as a chief gammon you know (laughs) (laughs) well yeah and the culture wars of the present moment. I can. I mean, when you were talking, I was just thinking, "Oh my God, it's the National Trust." <laughs> well, so so perhaps we could at the end of this this series, we could we could look at that those resonances. Brilliant. Perhaps. But for the time being, we will we'll stay in the Long Dock. Don't worry. Uh, we'll be back in the Long Dock amid the castles and all that stuff after the break. Hi. 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History with the renowned historian uh, Tom Holland and top albino monk, me, Dominic (laughs) Zambra. If you haven't listened to our previous podcast on The Da Vinci Code, that will just be meaningless babble, but let's hope that you have. Uh, Tom, so that I thought that was absolutely fascinating, and it was a complete revelation to me, actually, all that stuff about the sort of papal revolution and the creation of the idea of heretics and, and indeed Cathars. But why the south of southwest of france in particular i mean by the standards of early 13th century europe that there is and by the standards of the catholic church the roman church there is a lot of heresy in the region and the reason for that is the uh, the fact that we mentioned in the first episode namely that this this area is kind of quite remote from yeah. the centers of power and it's quite rugged and um, so you think of all those cathar castles they're kind of built on you know, outcrops of rock and so on. And the fields are kind of gathered around them and they're very heavily worked. So this is quite a long way, you know, it's, it's the backwards. It's, it's the kind of areas that would have voted Brexit or for Trump or whatever. I mean, that's, I guess vote for the National Front now, do they? I don't know. I don't know whether they vote for the National Front now, but what I will say is you go to the Languedoc now and some of those villages are very poor are very, you know, they fit an awful long way from any metropolitan centers. So you can completely see how going back to the the 12th century or whenever, 13th century, they would be places that the papal revolution, the legalistic university-driven revolution has not yet reached. Exactly. So the great university in France is obviously in Paris. And Paris is a very, very long way. So all those scholars, all those, you know, university-educated people who are then going on to you know, staff the, the the curia, the papal court, and, and to provide you know, the vast 
bureaucracy of of the catholic church with its you know its its lawyers its bureaucrats its teachers and so on they take for granted that they embody the universal truths of 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 the church even though they are actually the revolutionaries so they yeah. forget the fact that you know they're the ones who were, who were doing the innovations right we're not the culture warriors you're the culture warriors it's exactly that it's exactly that it's exactly that so the, exactly, yeah, I mean, always, yeah, kind of wonderfully, yes. So, and so it's, it's the regions that are kind of beyond the remit of, of the church authorities, beyond the remit of bishops and universities and, and, and teachers yeah. and bureaucrats and so on, who are seen as, you know, why are they, why are they holding on to these ludicrous beliefs? You know, exactly. There are people who are saying, but but I just think what everybody thought yesterday. No 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 no. You're right. So right. this is yeah. so this is now this is now a kind of heresy, and so it's this region between, I guess the uh, the Rhone and and the Dordogne in southern France comes to be seen as heaving full of kind of backwards people who yeah. don't use pronouns and exactly. have very unsound views of trans rights and yeah, all that. Exactly. I mean, the equivalent they, of that. They, they love flags and statues. <laughs> exactly. Flag shaggers. <laughs> so the Third Lateran Council where, you know, you had this thing about Paterines and Cathars, it, it actually specifies that the lands around Albi and Toulouse. So Toulouse is the, you know, it's the great city of the region. Albi, we mentioned it in the previous episode, is the, um, it's the southernmost bishopric of the southernmost archbishopric in yeah. in France, as as being a, a particularly kind of noxious breeding ground for heretics, and you get abbots and papal legates kind of visiting the region, and and they're appalled by it. So it's kind of like you know, so people come to Chipping Norton, or, or indeed, <laughs> well, actually, maybe it's maybe where people go to. It's actually what it is. It's when the Guardian sends people out to Hull to find out what people are thinking. <laughs> yes, and they, listen the, to gammons, gammons in pubs. In the aftermath of Brexit, they yes. would send people to the north of England and come back absolutely appalled by what they... Yeah, and, and what they find there is that the, the, the people in this region dislike the kind of, you know, the, the, the representatives of this papal revolution as outsiders. They kind of dismiss the whole idea of reformatio, of reformation, of of, you know, this idea that... Christendom can, should be purified and reformed and, 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 and all that. They dispute the claim to authority of, of the Pope's kind of inter, you know, international apparatus of, of, uh, of control. It's demands that, that everybody, you know, all Christians should, should do what the papacy says. The, the deference that they demand, the ties that they're obliged to pay, the services that they're meant to go to, uh, all this kind of stuff. And also they dispute the idea that there is some kind of fundamental division between priests and the laity. Right. So that was, that was kind of what the Patrines were targeting because they felt that because the, the, the Bishop of Milan and his clergy had concubines, therefore they were not pure. They were not separate. You know, if they yeah. like, they weren't Cathars. They hadn't separated themselves from, from the mass of the laity. But this in, uh, around Toulouse, around Albi, this is seen as something that's absolutely fine because it had always been fine. You know, that, that had always been the way it had been. So the priests and the people are very, uh, uh, they're not distinguishable in a way in, yes, in that area. And, and, and so the heretic, the heretics in this region, you know, they're not called Cathars. They are, they're called boni homines in Latin, which can mean both good men and good women. And you have this idea that 
holiness is not only to be found in priests, that actually, you know, members of the laity can be at least, if not more holy than priests. Yeah. And so you have men are holy if they display courtesy, because this is a very, very intense, competitive world um, where people are scratching a living from very poor soil often, mm-hmm. and they're kind of living cheek by jowl. And so structures of courtesy have evolved that enable order to be kept. And this is the world of the troubadours. You know, they celebrate people who, who, who are, are models of good manners, yeah. who, who behave well. And these models of courtesy, of good behavior are, are seen by people in the region as being overtly Christian models that okay. they are, that they enable you to be holy. So, uh, you know, a man who is, who is a kind of, you know, a model of courtesy, a model of self restraint, he's a good man by virtue of that. Right. And likewise, women also can win this status, but very particular types. So, so prepubescent girls and women who have been married and have gone through the menopause. So they can, so they can be good women. So it's basically chastity to some degree, is it? Yes, essentially. Yeah. But it's people who, 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 who cannot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically it's people who, who are outside the cycles of, of, of sex and marriage and childbirth. Yeah. And the very holiest are believed, you know, that you can attain, um, you can approach the perfection of Christ. This is a kind of great dream identification with, with, with the figure of Christ and that therefore the divine is manifest in the everyday. So that is a bit like the, the, the stereotypical view of the Cathars, the sort of slightly conspiracy theory view that they have a, a horror of sex or whatever and the horror of the material world. No, they don't have a horror of it. They don't have a they horror, have horror of, it. of it. They okay. don't have a horror of it. But I think the, the, the idea that these good men who how basically, you know, they hold views on church doctrine that are kind of both distinctively their own. So in some ways they are heretical. Mm-hmm. They seem to have, have downplayed the significance of the Old Testament, for instance, to uh, have only valued certain, certain books of the Bible. And these ca- kind of heresies, when they're debated, you know, so, so you get uh, scholars and monks going in there and debating with the good men and they're often kind of appalled by what seems to them overtly heretical statements. But at the same time, the good men are capable of giving perfectly orthodox summations of, of Christian doctrine. Right. So it's, it's, it's not kind of radically, radically unorthodox. It's a question of what they're emphasizing rather than. It's a question of what yeah. they're emphasizing. And there are, you know, there are lots of people. So a, a lot of, say, the lords, the ladies in the region, you know, they're aware of what's going on in the broader world. They are orthodox Catholics. But they don't feel obliged to go after the good men and the people who who regard them as holy because the divisions between them aren't that great. Yeah. You know, it's it's just kind of shades of difference. They're yeah, not yeah. that great. But but what starts to to kind of entrench the divisions, it's not just that the uh you know, the the, the people from outside, the papal legates and so on, the monks who are coming in are appalled and start seeing heresy. It's also the fact that the good men as they, they, they feel themselves being the objects of the contempt of the outsiders, start to see the outsiders as the heretics. And so, you, you, for instance, you have a bishop who overtly denounces them as heretics. And the reply of the good men is that it's not they who are heretical, but the bishop who pronounced judgment upon them. And they describe him as a ravening wolf, a hypocrite, and a foe of God. And his judgment is dishonest. So now the culture war is raging in earnest. So it is a culture. It, yeah. You could describe it as a culture war. The, yeah. the polarization is starting to happen. 
as always happens when when each side starts to kind of yes. impose stereotypes yes on the other but that's not all that's happening that's not the only reason because there's a lot of high politics in this there is there? also a lot of high politics going on as well so th- th- this region is not integrated into one of the kind of unitary kingdoms that are starting to emerge in this period so it, nominally you know you have the kings of france the kings of england both kind of claim uh, an overlordship over it and the king of england is henry ii in the the mid 12th century he yeah. marries eleanor of aquitaine and he says that eleanor of aquitaine has brought with her as part of her dowry these lands and that therefore they should be subject to him right and so in 11 1159 henry launches an attempt to conquer toulouse that is a, a disaster and henry is furious about this and basically he launches a kind of vendetta against everybody in the region and the counts of toulouse in particular all of whom are called Raymond. and so, so more makes the point that one consequence of his vendetta is that almost everything we read of the development of heresy in the region of toulouse over the next 20 years comes from english sources because because accusing your enemies of heresy is an absolutely you know it's it, it's an absolute by this point it's becoming a default way to target your your opponents and so it's henry ii he plays a big part in establishing the the, the image of this region as kind of riddled with heretics does he, he ab- absolutely and in 1163 there's a, a council at tour with the pope the pope is there yeah and henry ii is there and all these kind of promulgations are made and and, and the canons against heresy it's it's kind of clearly been sharpened by henry ii that they're target being targeted at the count of toulouse Right. So in other words, he's basically saying it's a, it's a region of deplorables left behind. So you haven't signed up to your revolution. And you know what? You should give me sanction to go in, clean it up. I'll sort it out. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yes, the modern analogy might be people saying that, you know, your enemies are communists or fascists or yes. far left or far right or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. You just tar them with the extremists. I mean, it's what people do on social media all the time, yeah, isn't you, it? Yes, exactly. You don't They're just disagree with me. You're a bigot. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So. But adding to the complication is that the Count of Toulouse, uh, who I said is always called Raymond, <laughs> he is in a constant state of rivalry with the Viscount of Béziers and Carcassonne, who are two kind of large towns, large yes. cities in the south of France. And they're a family called the Trotteval. Um, and they also are endlessly kind of chucking accusations of heresy at each other. Yeah. So you put in your notes, they're always accusing each other of being fascists or racists or something. It's that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and in 1165, Raymond, Count of Toulouse, summons all all the magnates, all the bishops, all the kind of bigwigs to a big uh, summit, which is specifically designed to identify heresy in the region and basically kind of dump it all over <laughs> all over the Vicomte of Béziers and, and Carcassonne. And both sides are doing it, but it's an incredibly dangerous game because, of course, in the broader world, you're getting you know in Rome and in the universities this increasing paranoia about heresy, and so. When you have Innocent III coming to the papal throne, yeah, you know this is this is a disaster waiting to happen. And so he is looking at this region, and he's getting you know he's getting messages left, right, and centre telling him that this is absolutely pestilential, that there are it's complete breeding ground for heresy, and something should be done. And so Innocent he turns to the King of France, Philip Augustus, Philip II. Yeah. You know, the great French king who, who, who kind of molds and shapes France as the greatest monarchy in, in, in Christendom. No friend of uh, Richard the Lionheart. Or indeed John. And 
he says, look, go, go down there and sort it out. But Philip doesn't want to do that because he's got bigger fish to fry. He's trying to, you know, he's trying to see off John. He's got Otto the fourth. He says, you know, I'm menaced by two lions in the form of the King of England and the, and, and the emperor. And basically I need to see them off. Right. Paris is the center of, you know, Northern France is the center of his interests. He doesn't want to get diverted by getting sucked into the kind of the bog of the South. So he refuses. So Innocent keeps saying, go on, go and have a crack at the heretics in the south of France. And Philippe keeps saying, no, I'm not going to do it. At the same time, um, Innocent is trying to get Raymond, I think he's the sixth yeah. of Count of Toulouse, basically to kind of get him to heal. And so he's threatening with excommunication and telling him that he, you know, he will be excommunicated unless he expels all the heretics. And Raymond, who's been busy accusing all his enemies of, of heresy, Actually, he doesn't want to do it because he doesn't, you know, he's kind of basically made it up. Oh, no. I mean, not completely, but he yeah. doesn't, he, you know, he, so Innocent is saying, you know, he's, he says wounds that do not respond to the treatment of a poultice should be cut away with a knife. But this is the kind of language that Raymond is very, very opposed to. He doesn't want to start cutting out people, you know, who may be his, his servants, his friends, his, uh, his, his, his liege men. Well, not least because, because they're not. So to be absolutely clear, they're not doing secret rituals. No. They're not. They're not no, they're, believing they're, in anything wacky. They're actually just believing what everybody believed a few decades, by and large. By and large. By and large. I mean, they do have their own kind of heretical takes on things, but everyone does. Yes, because there's never been uniformity. Because there's never been a uniform, a kind of institutional right. and ideological uniformity imposed before. That is what is yes. going on. Yeah, and 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 so of course, but 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 Raymond is very very you know he doesn't want to. I mean, it would create havoc. It would be terrible. Yeah. It would, you know, devastate his land. So he refuses, but he feels, you know, the breath of the Pope down his neck. And so in 1205, he says, yes, okay, I will expel all the heretics from his land. And he says this, and then he does absolutely nothing. And so right. two years later, he is visited by two papal emissaries. And one of them is a man called Peter de Castelnau, who is the Pope's official um, envoy to the region. And another is a guy called Arnold Amalric, who is the abbot of the Cistercian Abbey of Cito. And the Cistercians have been very, very prominent in visiting the region and arguing with the good men and reporting back in alarm terms to the Pope about the prevalence of heresy in the region. And they basically lay it on the line and they tell Raymond that he has to join an armed league, his own liegemen, his own vassals, that he has to expel Jewish officials, again, on whom he's very dependent, that basically he has to cut away everything that has sustained his own administration, you know, and this is a, a kind of terrible thing. Raymond can't really do that because it would destroy his, yeah. his ability to, to, to rule as count. And so he refuses and he's excommunicated. And, you know, this is, this is very, very alarming for him because he's now very nervous that the King Philip will, will come for him. Actually, Philip doesn't, but Raymond doesn't know this. And so in early in 1208, he, he writes to Peter de Castelnau and he says, look, I'm ready to surrender. I'll, I'll do what you say. Cause he's, he's so nervous about what's going to happen yeah. otherwise. So early January 1208, Raymond and Peter de Castelnau meet at a place called Saint Gilles du Gard, which is right, right on, almost on the coast, south of France. Um, right. Gilles was a, was a hermit, has a kind of famous church, famous pilgrimage center. And uh, Raymond tries to arrive at some kind of compromise. De Castelnau is absolutely obdurate, refuses to. The meeting breaks up. Uh, no consensus has been arrived at. The next morning, de Castelnau is uh, crossing the River Rhone when he is ambushed by a knight who is never identified. Oh, my word. And gets run through, a sword, you know, gets stabbed in the back. 
and uh, de Castaneau dies. And it's clear that it wasn't Raymond who commissioned it because he had every, he had everything to lose from it. But when the news is brought to the Pope, a poet in due course will write the immortal line, when the Pope heard of his legate's death, you can be sure he was not pleased. And this poet was, um, he, he's a man who's writing in Occitan. So the, the, the language, the longer doc, the, the language of the region. Yeah. A man called William of, of Tudela, William of Tudela. And this poem in Occitan is called the Canso de la Cruzada, Song of the Crusade. And it's the first use of that word, crusade. So this idea that, that holy wars can be fought against enemies of God that reach all the way back to 1095 when the Pope Urban II had, had, had summoned warriors to go and relieve Jerusalem from the Saracens. Various holy wars since then had been launched, but never before had the word crusade been used or a variant on crusade to, uh, to describe this this uh, this war and it demonstrates the full horror of what is about to be visited on the region ruled by by Raymond. A crusade against a region where the the enemies that they're looking for don't even exist, effectively, where the secret shadowy church. You know, I read a book when I was a teenager in which people always dressing up in white robes and purifying themselves and. You know, behaving in that sort of stereotypical conspiracy theory way with occult symbols and stuff. And absolutely, you know, that was just, that was not happening. Well, I, I mean, to reiterate, there are, by the standards of the Roman church, there are heretics there. I mean, there yeah. clearly are. They do hold people, there are people who hold heretical beliefs, but it's not the kind of black and white, the Manichaean vision yes. that the Pope has. And this is another of the paradoxes that I said that. In some ways, it's the Roman Church that, because it wants to purify everything, you yeah. know, that 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 it's 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 the servants of the Roman Church who are the Catharoi, the, the 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 Puritans, the Cathars. They're the ones whose mission it is to cleanse the world. And in the same way, this idea that there is a dualist church, a church that sees the world as divided into rival powers of good and evil, actually, you know, this isn't believed by the heretics, but it's kind of believed by Innocent the Third. Right. You know, he believes yeah. that the power of the devil is manifest and that it is threatening with Christendom with ruin. And the results are, well, I mean, apocalyptic, perhaps, is the right word to use. So if you'd been there, Tom, you just said, you want to see a Cathar, mate? Look in the mirror. I would. You want to see a Manichaean? Look in the mirror. And the Merovingian bloodline? <laughs> Not there. No. Not there. Oh, Not how there. disappointing. No. So we will return on Thursday with the heart-stopping climax of this story. Or, of course, if you just can't wait to hear about the Albigensian Crusade, Europe's first genocide, and I hear people saying that to me all the time, that they're looking forward to hearing about this. Tom, what they have to do, they go to www.restishistorypod.com. If you're a regular listener, you will know that off by heart, of course. And you can sign up to our members club and you can get early access to this truly gory and blood-soaked tale. It's a horrible, horrible story. Yeah, brace yourself for, for, for some horror. But I think the listeners actually quite like horrible stories. Well, we'll find out. We, we will find we, out. We check yes. the listening figures. <laughs> All right, we will see you next time for a horrible story. Goodbye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at 
restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.